This episode of Return to Base is brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee Company. Black Rifle Coffee Company is veteran owned and serves premium coffee and content to people who love America. We already know that Black Rifle Coffee roasts the best Colombian and Brazilian beans on the planet in their facilities in Manchester, Tennessee, and Salt Lake City. But did you know that Black Rifle Coffee Company is on a mission to hire 10,000 veterans in the next five years? This is why I pick their coffee over others and drink it every time and everywhere, from bumping around in Humvees all the way to sitting here recording this podcast. Black Rifle Coffee Company is the real deal. They put up when others shut up. If you're ready to taste the freedom, go to blackriflecoffee.com slash RTB and use coupon code RTB20 for 20% off your one-time order or coffee club membership. Hey, and while you're there, sign up for the coffee club. It's a subscription-based coffee experience. They'll send monthly shipments of coffee right to your door so you never miss a fill-up of freedom. Bravo Zulu, this is Victor Lima. We are RTB. This is Return to Base, a Better in Life podcast. Hello, we're with... Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, MD, he spent his career studying how children and adults adapt to traumatic experiences. He has translated his findings from neuroscience and attachment research to develop and study a range of treatments for traumatic stress in children and adults. He's the author of best-selling The Body Keeps the Score, which is helping transform our understanding of trauma and explores innovative ways to confront trauma. Dr. Van der Kolk's patients come from all walks of life and experiences, but for the purpose of this conversation, we're going to focus on veterans and issues involving post-traumatic stress disorder. Dr. Van der Kolk, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be here. Great. Well, for those listeners who haven't read your book or aren't familiar with your work, and, and I hope I get this right, the body keeps the score explains that the brain as a self-defense mechanism tries to hide our traumatic experiences from us and our bodies, yet our bodies don't forget. And this battle between our mind and the body can have grave consequences to our health. Would you mind elaborating on that? And I hope I yeah, got that right. That's, that's not quite how I would have said it. That, you know, we, have, we are complex creatures, all of us human beings. Right? And so it's really good to hang out with little babies. And little babies cannot talk yet. They don't understand anything about the world. But they do all kinds of things. They eat and they sleep and they fart and they suck and breathe. Uh, so little babies already do a lot of things and they get scared and they get angry and they have a lot of emotions. And that's because they have a small part of their brain that's involved in self-preservation is already in line. That's also the part of the brain where trauma hits. So trauma hits in uh, what in neuroscience we call the housekeeping of the body. And that when you get traumatized, your body doesn't work for you anymore. You have feelings, emotions, sensations that are disturbing. And your mind is trying to, just like you see in little kids when they start talking and start going to school, they create a new reality that is sort of a social reality. So we live in um, ideologies and systems and uh, concepts of the world that very much depends on where we live and who we hang out with. But the core part that takes care of ourselves and our bodies is sort of almost like a separate part. And so something terrible happens to you and you get raped or you see your best friend get killed and you are heartbroken and you feel terrible. And then you say to yourself, okay, man up, let's be strong, let's not do it. Everybody says, okay, it's over. And uh, you say, okay, it's over. And then you start behaving as if you're over it. And uh, you just keep sort of pretending like it didn't matter. And before too long, you're able to talk yourself into that it didn't matter. But that primitive part of your brain doesn't have the capacity to rationalize it and continues to experience all kinds of stuff as if your life is in danger, as if people try to hurt you. And you get this internal war to your rational brain and your emotional brain. And the result of that war is that you, you feel out of touch with yourself and out of tune with yourself. Things keep happening to you. You keep doing things that other people are 
it makes other people angry or makes other people scared of you. And then what you end up is that you become deeply ashamed about who you are. Interesting. And there's a deep, deep feeling of shame of there's something wrong with me. And I need to be careful that nobody finds out that there's something wrong with me. And so you start arranging your life around uh, trying to pretend like everything is just fine, but it isn't. And then oftentimes, uh, very many people at that point start drinking in order to sort of tranquilize themselves against these sensations, or they start taking drugs. Um, what's astounding to me, for example, is the whole opioid epidemic. Everybody says, it's about opioids. No, it's about people who take opioids. You know, right. Most people I know, if I say, hey, have a little heroin, would say, like, hell, I'm not going to take heroin. <laughs> but if you feel terrible, and you feel like the world is out to get you, uh, heroin may give you a nice little piece of relief. So you start taking heroin. So it is people start taking, doing these drugs in order to, to deal with feelings and sensations that they can't stand. Interesting. Interesting. So with, with all that understood, should we suspect that the goal of, of treatment in the end should be to forget the trauma, to remember no. it, to remember in a different way? To know that it happens and to know what happens, but to know when it happens. And so the, the goal of treatment is to go, yes, when I was 18 years old, I was in that war zone and I saw my best friend blow up and then I became so angry that I mowed some kids down. Okay. Well, it's terrible, terrible thing. Both your friends getting killed and what you may have done in response to it was horrendous. You don't want to remember that. You don't want to remember how heartbroken you were, how enraged you are. And so you're going to push it away. And in fact, you need to go back and say, yes, this is what happened. It happened to me when I was a stupid 18-year-old kid mm. who, who didn't have the resources to deal with it any other way. So, so it's, it's, uh, it's, really, it's really feeling what you as a creature have gone through and say, yeah, this is what I went through, but it happened back then. Right. You really know the difference between what you're feeling today and what you're feeling back then. Interesting. You know, a lot of times I, I think to myself when we discuss the past and, and, and how people dwell on it, I remind them, and I'm not a super religious person, but I remind them of the serenity prayer, which says, you know, we must accept the things we cannot change. And, and that kind of reminds me of something like that, where it's important to acknowledge that these things yes. did happen rather than yes. pretending that they didn't right. and, and knowing that we can't change the past. See, and there's another complex story here, and that's the trauma changes your brain. Let me give you an example. I have a I've seen, I know uh, quite a number of people, one of whom is actually a good friend of mine, who are foreign, cor foreign cor correspondents. And they go to Afghanistan and Eritrea and the Congo and Libya and, and Syria, and you see all these horrendous things. And they are tense and they are uptight, but when they come to Cambridge, Massachusetts, they go into a panic reaction because their brain has changed to be alive under extreme danger, but they feel terrified when they feel safe. And so I think a lot of people who have been exposed to a lot of trauma feel better when there is a high level of anxiety, high level of danger around them. And oftentimes they create this feeling of danger because their brain is good in dealing with danger. Their brain is terrible in dealing with putting diapers on a one-year-old. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, that can be uh, frightening for anybody. I, I don't know. You know, I've had two yeah. boys, so it's, yeah, it's right. kind of like a war zone anyways. <laughs> uh, it isn't, you know. Uh, and, and when you're a combat vet, you may see it as a, as a war zone. In fact, they're just little babies who need to have their right. diaper changed. <laughs> like, right. But it may evoke all these feelings like, oh, my God, this kid is not listening to me. Right. <laughs> these intense reactions um, to minor issues. Hmm. Huh? Interesting. Yeah. 
So, sir, one of your, your first jobs out of school was as a uh, staff psychiatrist at the BA clinic in Boston, correct? Oh, was after I finished the 29th grade, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you, you know, I, I, I saw that you had, um, you had started your, um, your learning there really on, on how veterans uh, yeah. veterans reacted so before the, from the before my last my, my first job was to run a state mental hospital the last state mental hospital uh, before we sent the patients home and that's that was also very interesting but my next job was at the VA yeah okay yeah so your your experience with the uh, with the Vietnam War and the veterans um, who came back from Vietnam um, to help get the audience oriented. And can you tell us a little bit more about your time there and, and how it has affected your career since you left? Well, uh, yeah, the veterans immediately just caught my, uh, my attention and my interest and my fascination and my sympathy, in part, I think, because I was born at the very end of the Second World War and as a small kid, uh, relatives came back from concentration camps and they came back from war zones. And so my early imprint was of seeing a lot of people come back from the war and being intrigued with both their stories, but also how um, they would blow up from time to time or become very irascible or withdraw. And even as a kid, I was very fascinated by that. And then I started to work at the VA and here with these you know, young guys still, uh, um, powerful guys, uh, smart people, and something had happened to them. Uh, they were frozen in their bodies. They kept exploding. The waiting room in the VA was filled with, uh, the, the, the walls were filled with uh, holes in the wall where people had put their fists through the wall. Uh, they minor things that would blow up and become very angry. And I thought, something happened to these guys. Now, these guys were able to fly a helicopter and rescue a platoon out of a war zone. You have to be very calm and very focused for that. And now when they sit in the waiting room at the VA and somebody says, you have to wait for five minutes, they get enraged. I go like, something happened. And so I got really intrigued with what, what might have happened to these guys that they had... Uh, that damaged them. And the next thing was that the VA was filled with people and we put people on the waiting list. Mm -hmm. And I said to my boss, is it okay if in the waiting room, even before people become patients, I meet with people and they can meet with each other because these guys are hurting and they need to get some sort of support. And uh, so we started these groups sort of not as part of the VA, but outside of it almost. And uh, we started off and say, you can talk about anything. And somebody say, I don't want to talk about the war. And I said, fine, you can talk about anything. Other guy said, I don't want to talk about the war. And then nobody said anything for half an hour. And then he started to talk about the war. And when he talked about the war, they came to life. And it turned out that the war had, for, for them, been by and large a very powerful experience. They had felt powerful, they had felt skilled, they had felt great about their comrades and their friends, and then something had happened that sort of blew up that, that, that feeling they had of, boy, I'm a much better person than I thought I was, I can fire a machine gun, I can fly a helicopter, I can repair complex engines, and so they got a very good feeling from being in the military, and then something happened that broke them, and they got like, Oh my God. And then oftentimes they had done things that they felt very bad about, uh, which later on came to be called as moral injury. But that moral injury piece was a very important part for most people that they had been involved in stuff that their conscience could not live with, actually. Interesting. Uh, and once they started to talk about it, they opened up. And the next thing that happens, interesting to me also, is that they took me in but they could not take me in as a guy who had not been in Vietnam. So they gave me a uniform. They made me an honorary Marine. And so they had this need that you belong to the in-group or you belong to the out-group. And, and if you 
want us to trust you, you have to become a Marine in my mind also. And so, wow. but they saw is this very strong bond uh, based on the common experience. People would induct me into it, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. uh, in order to be, be, become acceptable. And uh, what, what struck me at the time also is that these guys were extraordinarily loyal to people who had gone through similar experiences as they had gone through, but they had a very hard time connecting with people who had not had that experience. And so what struck me, for example, is that I met several of their wives who were very competent, smart people, but they had a hard time making a connection with their wives because their emotions were stuck in the war and their wives were not part of the war experience. Wow. And that's something I've not heard people talk about uh, after Iraq and Afghanistan, but I bet that's still happening today. Right. In interesting thing you said there is how you grew up in, in you know, right at the end of, of World War II. For our, for our listeners, can you tell us where you grew up? And I'd like to know if, if you recognize those signs of trauma looking back when you were a kid, and if it was just on the, the soldiers, the people who fought in the war, or as you know, civilians are very much a part of combat in World War II. Right. How, did, how did you see that they were reacting to this trauma as you were growing up? Well, you know, I was a kid, you know, so right. you don't see the larger context. And basically, I grew up you know, very much like, you know, basically, you know, I grew up in a place very similar to what Kabul is like today, you know, people getting killed, people getting carted off, people evacuating, like uh, chaos. And, and I don't remember that, actually. I was too young to remember it, but the imprints are there. And so what I saw after that is slowly a society that started to get it back together. But I saw people do these weird things from time to time. Both people had been affected by the war, but also people in civilian life, of course. Uh, so I never, in my mind, even to this day, had made a very clear distinction between civilian trauma and war trauma. In many ways, it's the same thing. Huh? A, girl, a girl who gets gang rapes in high school has a similar fundamental experience as a guy who goes off to war and sees atrocities. Interesting. The core experience is one of, oh my God, this is too much for anybody to bear. Yeah. Okay. So in your experience, you brought up Kabul, you brought up the war on terror veterans. Have you seen, are there si similarities or differences that you've seen from the folks who came back from Vietnam to the people who served in the Gulf War, the first Gulf War to post 9-11 veterans and, and, and their trauma? I know it's different. I, I, but, but. I've been very intrigued with that question. I don't know the answer to that because I've not seen enough people who were in Iraq and Afghanistan to be able to generalize from that. I saw a large number of people um, who came back from Vietnam who were my age at the time. And what struck me at that time is that I grew up, you know, my parents were Second World War veteran people and the Second World War veterans were different from the Vietnam veterans. And, the, uh, and I studied it scientifically and the Second World War uh, veterans put things into their bodies and they by and large mainly became medically ill. They had heart problems, bowel problems, muscle problems, but they didn't, did not talk about their psychological problems. Then Vietnam comes along and things are mainly acted out in terms of people's relationship, their families and people relationship their work. Historically, the culture you live in determines to some degree how you deal with, how you organize your traumatic experiences. So I, my hunch is that today people will look somewhat differently than they did after Vietnam. But I've personally not had that capacity to, uh, and not studied enough people to know that for sure. Understood. Maybe you have thoughts about that. Huh? I, um, I, I do have some thoughts, but I'm uh, obviously uh, not as informed or educated as yours. But, but you I, know I, a lot of people. Huh? So, Yes. Uh, yes. You, you, do you have any any thoughts about it? Do you think there is a difference yourself? I think 
that there has to be something to the way Vietnam War veterans were received back home where they had to suffer in silence a lot of times. They weren't proud of their service. See, having lived through that, I don't com- com- completely buy that. Huh? There was a lot of, I know, the, the common, what people commonly say, is the Vietnam veterans were treated with contempt and, and badly. That was very not much, not my experience. Interesting. You know, and I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and in uh, Chicago so, and Hawaii during those times. Uh, we were always very respectful to the people who had gone to Vietnam. And I don't, I don't think that's universally true that people received that badly. I think that's a sort of a myth that was created afterwards. It's a painting that we're viewing now from a different perspective. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and you have, you have all these mythologies that occur around this stuff. Right. And, and everybody who's traumatized feels cut off from their environment. Right. And so when you come back from Vietnam, you may feel terrible about other people smoking dope and having a great time being home, and there may be a feeling of, oh, they, they despise us. But that was, not my, that was not my personal experience. That's refreshing. Uh, sure. you, you know, honestly, growing up in, in the 80s and the 90s, the perception that, that I always understood was that there was a lot of contempt. Of course, that's just what you kind of see on, on TVs and movies. And Yeah, and, that's, that's what the story that, pe- that people start, start right. living by. Yeah. Well, when, when you ask how, how do I feel the global war on terror veterans are, are coping, Obviously, we're not coping successfully in many ways. I, I think we have an enormous amount of service members who deploy to, to those regions. I myself am one of them. I have no personal trauma that I can recall. Certainly, I've been in places where other people would have been traumatized. Mm. For some reason, I haven't been. We'll, we'll kind of get to that a little bit, a little bit later. Mm. You mentioned actually something that I... I also thought was interesting is that different cultures maybe deal with things in different ways. Yeah. Do, you, do you think that your methods or your your hypothesis for, for treatment and for diagnosis, does it work in the Eastern part of the world, for instance? Does this work as a, a Western model? And can it work for, let's say, our allies in Afghanistan who are dealing well, with some... Geez. Our brains are basically the same from culture to culture, but our symbols are very different from culture to culture. And so, but I've been very lucky that I've traveled a lot and with some depth. And so I spent, had a good immersion in India. I was advisor to the Truth Commission of South Africa. So I was very, very close to what happened back then in Africa, Uh, traveled to South America, China quite a lot. Japan. And I've actually, a lot of what I've learned, I've learned from other cultures. Western culture, as they're very much exemplified by the VA, is left on two things. I call Western culture a post-alcoholic culture. It comes from Europe. In Europe, when you feel bad, you take a swig. In the army, if you feel bad, you go to the commissary and take a swig. Like, I don't know how it is today, but traditionally the army is a very alcoholic culture. <laughs> and as is how you deal with your emotions is by drinking. Right. And the other thing you do in, as Western people, you talk a lot. You explain a lot. So that's the two pillars of Western approaches to suffering, uh, very much exemplified by the VA. But you hear the VA, you get pills, pills that incidentally don't work. Now, I did the studies on these pills, like my name is on those papers. It didn't work. (laughs) And yet people keep getting pills at the VA to a huge amount of money. They don't work. That's part of how I got involved in this whole PTSD research. Those pills didn't work. Uh, And you you talk. And you reframe your cognitions. Then I go to um, Japan. And I see people do kendo fighting. And I see them do jujitsu. And I see them do Taiko, taiko drumming. And I go like, they do that to get their bodies back in shape and in tune. And they go to Africa and they follow Bishop Tutu, dealing with trauma. And what does Tutu do? He sings with people and he dances with people and he moves with people. 
and they write songs about her suffering. I go like, wow, we wouldn't do that in the Veterans Administration. But clearly what he was doing in Africa was extremely powerful. And he had gone to China. I went to China early on when China was really very tough society just after Mao died. And <laughs> nobody talks about his habits. In, in every place in China, people are doing Tai Chi. And I joined these Tai Chi people in China doing Tai Chi, and I go like, wow, they don't do this because it's cute for the tourists. They do this because their relatives all got killed by Mao, and they make these movements in order to help their bodies to become calm. So a lot of what I learned, I learned by stepping outside of the premises of Western culture of drugs and yakking. And of course, what I always love is that the, the military has always known that. Uh, it was invented way back in Roman times, resurrected by some Dutch prince, is that basic training is not about talking, not about understanding, it's not about taking drugs. It's about moving, singing, working, having your body move. And after 12 weeks of basic training, you are a different person. Right. A powerfully different person. You're part of the what they can do, huh? but but I think but but so intriguing to me is that the military knows extremely well how to change a pimply, horny, difficult to get along with adolescent into a very good working person. Huh? They're right. very good at this, and it doesn't involve any of the methods that the VA uses to teach traumatized people. Yeah, thank you, Uncle Sam, for teaching me how to march and, and, and make, making me a man, is, is what I say. <laughs> but it does something. effect on people, you know? All, all those things you mentioned, yeah. and, and in your book, you mentioned even yoga, yeah. Yeah. all those things are practices that people generally do together. They have a sense yeah. of community, and yeah. it's almost yeah. like they're moving in unison as yeah. if in one body. Yeah. So, very but interesting. That's, that's a huge issue, huh? Synchrony is what makes the military possible. Have feeling that you're in touch with people, in tune with people, that you're on the same wavelength, makes for a powerful fighting force and a fighting unit. I bet a special operations guy, you know that very well, about how the movement and the rhythm between you and your, and your colleagues is critical for the success of the operation. And it's that synchronicity with other people that disappears after you, after you leave the military. And you feel out of sync with everybody else around you. Yes. That's a, an important question for all of us to ask is how we can help people whose body was helped to be in sync in a different situation to be in sync now that the war is over for you. Right. Okay? So some of the best programs I know of for veterans, for example, is a, a program run by my friends Stefan Wolfert is deep flute. Uh, it, they do Shakespearean acting with soldiers, with veterans, and they learn how to do a play together, uh, in part written on their own life experiences. Another program I know is called Songwriting with Soldiers, where they sing together and they move together. And so these are some of the dimensions that are not mainstream, but that are very powerful ways of helping you to get back in sync with other human beings. Right. Yeah, that's a powerful statement, though. The At the end of your career, you do largely fall out of sync with others. You don't you don't go to formations. You're, you're right. on to your own appointments. And a lot of people, that is when they slip into, as you alluded to, alcoholism yeah. and other self-destructive behaviors. Yeah. You, you mentioned, you know, that our war is over. Pretty appropriate. 9-11. 20 years ago, I was in Germany. I was a young specialist at the time. Um, but now we have the end of the war in Afghanistan. And it's been reported that the suicide hotline for veterans has had a significant oh. increase in calls yeah. since the fall of Kabul. Why do you think that is? And, and do you think it's about what's been happening in Afghanistan has triggered trauma that maybe some people haven't even recognized now? I venture to say that some of the trauma that people are, are experiencing right now has not manifested until now. Do you, do you agree with that testament or that, uh, that thought? It's a huge issue. And that, you know, I, we are meaning-making creatures. And so 
if you this happened at the end of the Second World War. And the Second World War was a good war, and we won the war. Actually, you won the war and liberated me as a little baby. And, uh, and, but there was no question who the victor of the war was. Right. So soldiers would come home. They had their nightmares. They have their flashbacks. They have their troubles. But they say, it was worth it. It was truly it was a sacrifice that I made in order to make the world safe for democracy. And that is a very big con consolation. Uh, and you give up your heart and your soul for that enterprise. If you go to Vietnam, you realize that it was all in vain. Why the hell did you suffer so much? Right. Why did your best friend get killed? Why did you do all these horrendous things? It was good for nothing. Uh, Afghanistan, you know, a lot of people know for a long time, this is not going to work out well. You know, most people, a long right. time ago said, it's not going to work. Alexander the Great got defeated in Afghanistan and every other invader since that time. <laughs> you know, <Right. laughs> who the hell do we think we are that we're not going to do that? Some hubris. <laughs> it's hubris. <laughs> but still, young kids get indoctrinated, you're doing this for great cause, and you do it. You do it because you want to believe in the cause. And then it all falls apart. And you go like, what the hell did I waste my time, my life on? It's a very big moral issue. You know, and then people find excuses, people to blame or people to be angry at, or somehow you need to come to terms that an enormous amount of your life is devoted to something that at the end failed. Yes. And it's a terrible thing to have to confront. It is. It is. And I know a lot of people out there are, are suffering. I've, I've had this conversation in the last couple of weeks. But you're right. It's it's a matter of why. A lot of questions <laughs> unanswered. Yeah. And you had said moral. Um, I'm sorry. What was moral injury? Yeah. Moral yeah. injury is moral yeah. injury different than traumatic injury and or an injury that occurs as a result of a traumatic event? No, it goes very closely together. We are fundamentally moral human beings. You were trained as I think most military people are, that if your friend gets shot, you stay behind and you'll do anything to get them out. And that's fundamental morality. And we are there for each other, you protect each other, et cetera, et cetera. And then in the war, things you do things and things happen to you that in some ways really violate those core principles. And living with that uh, can become a great, great burden on you, particularly if you cannot say, but we liberated a concentration camp and hundreds of people lived because I did it. But if you say it was good, it didn't result in anything, you live with a deep sense of what the hell am I doing with my life? Right. And these are real challenges. You know, I think nobody should minimize this. This is, this is these are big issues. Yeah. All right. Changing gears just a little <laughs> bit and going back to trauma is do you believe all trauma is created equally? You kind of alluded to this earlier. And in your book, you speak at great lengths about the trauma associated with child abuse or child sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. Is there a difference in patients that suffered from child abuse or child sexual abuse? And let's say there's veterans who suffered their trauma in war. Um, is their trauma any different than the child who well, this stuff happened to him at no fault of their own? There is a difference, but the difference is not as black and white as we like to think it is, because many veterans have childhood trauma histories. Interesting. About 70%, 80% of people who join the military have serious childhood problems. And oftentimes people join the military because it's a great way to get out of poverty and out of alcoholic families, stuff like that. So it's not just the war, we are an accumulation of experiences. Now, there's a difference between today, my witnessing some horrendous event, and when you're a little kid, and that's when you're a little kid, your brain grows according to the experiences that you have, and that's who you become. So when you're regularly being beaten up, or you see family violence, you, that becomes part of you, and that's who I am. I'm a child who's 
who is likely to get beaten, or I'm a child who's only good to be sexually molested, or I will never have anybody touch me anymore because uh, I, that's too scary for me. As a, as a child, you get formed who you are as by your trauma, and that determines more or less your identity. When you have had a, had a pretty good childhood, and then you join the military, and terrible things happen to you, it is more or less how PTSD is defined, is you're a relatively healthy person, and then something terrible happens to you, and that changes things. But that issue is by and large fairly easy to treat. Interesting. So if you're a well put together person, and you see something horrendous, you, get very, you can get very bad PTSD, but that sort of PTSD is quite responsive to the treatments that I talk about in my book and a few of the treatments that VA does, but the VA does very few of them. Yeah. Interesting. So, so you had, I'm glad you brought this up because that was actually going to be my next question about is, does being the victim of child abuse, child sexual abuse, something horrible in your uh, growing up, does that then make you more likely to suffer from debil debilitating PTSD if you go off to combat? So yeah. apples to apples, yeah. if I grew up in, yeah. a, in a nice nurtured home, but my buddy yeah. grew up in a home and he was terribly abused. We suffered yeah. the same trauma in a war zone. <clears throat> does his post-traumatic stress outweigh mine somehow? No, see, you know, these diagnoses, I call them so-called diagnoses because they're not really scientific constructs. They're a list of symptoms. Right. So if something horrendous happens to both of you, you are likely to for initially have the same symptoms of being very depressed, uh, having flashbacks, having nightmares, uh, become very irascible. But you, if you come from a very secure household, will much more likely to respond to treatment than your buddy who was abused as a child. And it won't be only in the PTSD symptoms, but it will be harder to focus and to pay attention. It will be harder to concentrate on the job. It will be harder to uh, have an intimate relationship with somebody because that earlier stuff starts affecting much more of your life. So it becomes a much more pervasive issue. Right. So you're so in summary, the person who has existing trauma, they you could address the trauma that happened in war, but they still may feel like a worthless person at the end of that treatment. Or feel worthless or also have a very hard time uh, putting their teeth into something, uh, being able to devote yourself to a job. For example, it was an interesting study. Um, you'll never rarely hear quoted. And that is that um, there's a study of the guys who went to Harvard who went to the Second World War. And it turned out that, so these guys came from privileged families, they had an extremely good education, they came back, and they had, many of them had horrendous PTSD, but they did much better professionally than the average population. So they became accountants or lawyers or doctors and were very good in focusing on what they had learned before their trauma and becoming very good at it. And to not, they couldn't have good relationships with people. Their kids oftentimes hated them, but they were very good in their work. And they were much better at their work than the classmates who had not gone off to war. Wow. So the trauma made them hyper-focused. Hyper-focused. And you made hyper some people in your unit who, after they came back, became very good at something. Uh, they became very focused on becoming a very good businessman or race car driver or something. And as long as they can focus on one thing, uh, they can sort of ignore the rest of their lives. But so what, what it looks like is that if in addition to that, you have childhood abuse and neglect, then it becomes much harder to, to grasp this one thing that can sort of make you look good for the outside world. Hmm. Hmm. Very that interesting. Is, that does somehow with you? Is that, I mean, you've been around, you know more veterans than I do. Uh, 
Does it fit in with some, yeah, with ab- some of your observations? Yeah. Absolutely. A lot of times we attribute it to the leadership that you are expected to learn and to develop and, and execute yeah. in the military. But yeah. perhaps it is, they say folks who have been to SEER school, for instance, come out of SEER school and for the rest of their lives, feel and handle stress differently than the rest of, of I the I think population. it's probably true. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, you know, Having parents who are real parents is very different from having parents who are getting off drunk. And in the military, of course, the, the, the quality of your leadership has a tremendous impact on your uh, mental well-being. Huh? Absolutely. Also, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And morale and, yeah. and just esprit de corps of the unit, all those yeah. things play a tremendous part. I mentioned this before. I spent 20 years in the Army, mostly in special operations. I did a ton of deployments. And... I can't think of anything, any one thing that I feel was traumatic in my own experience. I wouldn't say I suffered from PTSD in any classical sense, except for, you know, sometimes when I come back from deployment, I would have a period of uh, hypervigilance where I was anxious and, and my wife complained that, uh, that I was irritable, but I adjusted pretty quickly. Now there's a segment of the population, the veteran population who, who has, who suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder. And, you know, some of these folks never left the wire and they can, I guess they can attribute that to this hypervigilance and, and having to be hypervigilant for a long period of time. What would you say to those people who, quite frankly, some of them I think are often ashamed to admit that their trauma that they have trauma when they know that others have significant trauma. They didn't have to pick up a leg. They maybe just were in their bunker and I don't know, some rockets hit the base five miles away, but no, they're still suffering from some sort of trauma Uh that they have to get treated for at least when they get out or even when they're still in the service. What would you say to those folks? Well, you know, there's something you say here that I'd like to, discuss and that is people think that trauma is about an event that happens at some point in the past but that's not really what trauma is an event happens that sort of changes your orientation in life but uh, the problem is not that event the problem is how your brain is changed uh, as a result of that event so you come back from very dangerous situations and your brain is reset you become hyper alert and to be suspicious and to wonder whether people will get hurt you, which makes it harder to negotiate your relationship with your wife and saying, honey, it's okay. Instead of saying, well, you become reactive. And so your life becomes very much influenced by your reactions that are not really part of that old memory, but how you have adapted to that old situation. So, you, you live with a different brain after having been traumatized. So the issue is, how do you help live in a body that feels safe? And to my mind, a very important part of living in a body that feels safe is to pay attention to your body. That's why I did the yoga study. Right. And what came up in the yoga study is that yoga was a very helpful component of the treatment of PTSD, probably more helpful than any medication that people take. So you need to really learn to negotiate the sensations in your body. Uh, and you need to, and so doing martial arts can be very helpful to help your body to become calm and to use your hypervigilance in an organized way for your martial arts moves and not on your children or your wife. Interesting. And so, uh, so but the event that started it at some point is no longer the relevant issue. What's relevant right now is how, how do I as a psychiatrist or anybody else help you to live in a brain that feels safe right now and that you feel enthusiastic about your life. Mm-hmm. So it's really about how you live in the present. Right. And so, for example, one of my favorite treatments is neurofeedback a brain-computer interface work where you can see how these brains are all over the place and you can play computer games in your own brain waves and calm your own brain down. 
you can go to a yoga studio and calm your body down. Or you can join a church choir, and that's how you calm your body down, is by singing with other people. And so the big question is, what can I do to help my body to feel safe and my mind to feel engaged with the presence? Interesting. So I've done yoga, and it's interesting. You get this feeling of, of euphoria. It's almost like a running high, right? But yep. But it's a very calming experience that, that I absolutely enjoy, but I've, I've never done it for the stated purpose of being therapeutic. We talked a little bit about, about morality, right? And, and we've discussed a little about a little of this, what I'm about to say just a few minutes ago, but in my feeling, the way I look at it is there's few things that happen in combat that, um, that trigger traumatic feelings or stress. One, of course, is, you know, that we just talked about, I'm amped up all the time. Uh, and I, I might like that feeling, I might not like that feeling. But always something, there's always some danger, some sense of danger. There's another one where, you know, I've seen my buddies die, or I was badly wounded. And then there's one that's all too common is there's this feeling that I went overseas. And for cause noble or not, I did some horrible things to other human beings, right? And and I think that as a member of the military, I've met several people who really struggle with that. It might have been an enemy soldier. You know, they they talk in in, on combat. I believe the author talks about how in in the Civil War, people didn't want to kill people. They found tons of guns with with a lot of bullets in them. We fixed the military in a way after uh, World War II by shooting at human-shaped targets because they wanted to normalize that. (laughs) But, But the distinction that somebody's trauma comes from something as as, as I I feel guilty for something. I feel guilty and I don't, I can't talk about it because right. I might bring shame to my unit or even legal trouble to my yeah. friends and comrades. How does one, I mean, do you recommend that, that regardless of, of the consequences that somebody open up to somebody about no. it? Or? No, no. <laughs> your caution is well advised. You know, um, one of the earliest stories my father told me is about a neighbor kid of ours getting murdered in front of our door. I supposed to be there as a little baby by some Nazi soldiers. And the first time a Vietnam veteran told me about what he had done, I was freaked out by it. And I said, I'll never talk to you again. I was so upset by his telling me, it takes a long time to be able to learn to listen to the stories and your caution is well advised you really need to case somebody out before you tell them a very very scary things about what you've done that you feel guilty about because people may be very judgmental about it huh? right. as judgmental as you are yourself right huh? uh, and so you want to really make sure that the person who you confess this to is a person who uh, who has done their own work and is able to listen to it without judgment and know that this is part of the experience that I need to help you with. Huh? And so like in our current work, I'm, I'm uh, part of a team of people who explores the use of psychedelics for PTSD. And in psychedelics, this issue of, uh, of moral injury uh, is probably extraordinarily well helped because people in these states have a very deep self sense of self-compassion mm. and they go like ah yeah this is horrible horrible what i did it's horrible but this 18 year old kid who i once was had to go through and the horrible that he had to do these things and i was 18 and then you need to come to a point of self-forgiveness mm. and you come to a point of self-forgiveness by being with people who can accept you for just the way you are but so you can't accept yourself. Yeah, this is what happened to me, but I don't have to relive it over and over again. Thank God it's over. I'll never have to do that again. Mm. And so the issue of being able to somehow place it in time and to say, yes, this is what I was happened 
over there when I was 18 years old, bomb is different from now I'm 40 or 50 years old and I'm living here. That's different. It's a different circumstance, a different person. And something in your mind needs to allow you to fully realize that, which is not a cognitive issue. It's not a question of, oh, now I understand. It's an experiential issue of feeling what it, that kid went through and knowing deeply where you are now. So it's, it's a very deep right. visual experience of presence and, and history. Yeah. So with, the, with these treatments, and, and yeah. this goes right into where I want this to go, was with um, treatments like <laughs> MDMA, maybe psilocybin, yeah. um, the use of, of cannabis. Uh, um, ayahuasca. Yeah. Ayahuasca, right. Yeah. Do you believe that some of these treatments allow somebody who's, who's suffering to confess these things to themselves yeah yeah where, where they don't have to tell and i don't have to tell you doctor that i did yeah. things i can reconcile it within yeah. myself it really is about you and you you and your relationship to you and as a therapist i'm just an intermediary for you to help you to love yourself know yourself accept yourself etc uh but it doesn't come from me. I, I, my job is to create a situation where you can learn to know yourself and accept yourself for who you are. Uh, and, you know, it's a very complex, complicated thing. And right. uh, it's hard to find, uh, you know, that's why I've spent my whole life, and I'm 78 years old, I'm still exploring new treatments because I'm not satisfied with any of the treatments we have found. Uh, the treatments that I've described in my book, I've seen them work very well for many, many people, but not for everybody. Huh? Right. And so it's always, okay, I'll try this, see how it works. And then after this, I'll try that. Huh? Uh, Carl Malanti wrote his beautiful book, What It's Like to Go to War. Huh? And he writes about his whole process of, I did that, I did that, I did that, I did that, I did that. And it often takes takes many different steps on this healing journey. Hmm. How far so, do you think So what bothers me about the VA, for example, is to say, this is treatment of choice. Right. Nobody should be allowed to say this. I have a treatment that sometimes works for some people. Right. How close are we, do you think, to these treatments, MDMA, cannabis, ayahuasca, to being more mainstream or for veterans or for, for the larger population. So the, the important thing is that there are things right now that um, are very helpful that I described in my book that are not mainstream. Huh? For example, neurofeedback, very helpful, very effective. I've done research on it, uh, yoga, martial arts, EMDR, wonderful treatments. Huh? So there are very good treatments that are available why the VA is never doing any of them beats me. Mm. Because in the rest of the world, we do all the other treatments. Right. Uh, we're not a drug addicted group of people. You know, we've got, oh, take, it, take another pill, take another pill. Huh? Uh, so, so now everybody's excited about psychedelics for good reason. Right. But what I'm sad about is that I wish that neurofeedback had had the same general excitement because it's available and it's legal already. Right. <laughs> Where can one go to, That's uh, the to work with? You have to find in your own community somebody who knows how to do neurofeedback. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you maybe you can send us a couple links uh, of some resources and, and we can yeah. get this to our audience. I, I know I, we're running yeah, out of time yeah. here. And, and but let me say something about psychedelics. Um, they're very promising. Our data look very, very good. But you know, these are very powerful drugs. And I'm worried that once they become legal, that people will Abuse cut them. corners and not take it seriously and start popping pills in the wrong place and that they will not be used for therapeutic purposes. And so we'll see how it goes. How these drugs, if used correctly, can have enormous benefits. But boy, I already see the drug makers bouncing on it Come and get your pills. You pay me twelve hundred dollars for it, and hey, get your pill over here. And that's not what we do. How we do? We help people to go very deep inside to 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 process their own experience. That's what we call this 
MDMA assisted psychotherapy. So you need to still go inside and do the work. Right. You need to still open up the hood. Yeah. You need to open up the hood. Yep. Absolutely. Awesome. So we're coming up short on time yes. here. And, and I do want to thank you for the time you spent. I've had a tremendous conversation. What it, to close, what's the most important thing that you would tell a military veteran who uh, might be struggling with mental health after they left the service or as they're leaving the service? I would say community is critical. I don't think you can do this by yourself. Some people may be able to do it, but like 12-step programs have done wonders for drug-addicted people. I think support groups, uh, making alliances with people. Some of the programs that I'm involved with, people have a little app where they can call each other at any time. It's all about community is the core of it helps people, makes people feel safe. So very important to make the linkages with other people. The second thing is that uh, people get better. If you really devote yourself to finding out what's useful for you and you have a support system that allows you to do it, explore. That's why I wrote my book. And I have all these different chapters of all these different treatments because one thing may work for you and it may not work for me. For example, for me, making music with people is a very powerful thing. For you, it may be nothing. For me, yoga is very helpful. For you, you may hate yoga. For many people I know, Neurofeedback is very helpful. For other people, it doesn't work. Cognitive treatment it helps to understand how screwed up you are, but understanding why you're screwed up does make you less screwed up. Now right. I know why I'm screwed up, but it's not good enough. <laughs> you need to have experiences that allow you to experience yourself differently. Right. Yeah. So if, if I'm hearing you, there's many, many techniques, but I think key among them and probably a, a common thread is, is community. Can't do it alone. Yeah. He is community. Do it alone. Yeah. community. And some faith in yourself to keep exploring and to be able to register, this was helpful. And also to be able to say, this wasn't helpful. And in that, you are the ultimate authority. Only you can tell what makes you feel better. And your doctor has a limited amount of information, but you know what's right for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Dr. Bessel. I hope to maybe talk to you again one day. We'll move this conversation even further down the road and say, I appreciate you speaking to our veteran yeah. community. I, I know that yeah. there's, there's a lot going on right now with COVID and with Afghanistan and, yeah. and I appreciate you taking your time out of your You guys have a big us. challenge and my heart goes out to you. Like, good luck to you guys, like, and women. Yeah. Thank you. Thank okay. you, sir. All right. Okay, have a great day. Bye. Bye. All right. One podcast down, the inaugural one, hopefully the first of many. Obviously, we got started with a really great guest and Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. Got pretty heavy there. It seems like it's something that is always on the front of the mind of a veteran community. We hear there's so many problems with post-traumatic stress disorder with, you know, we're losing 22 veterans a day to suicide. So it's great to talk to somebody about trauma and how to deal with trauma. So Again, this, it's something that I think we need to hear. It's obviously something that, that we can take. So thank you. Thank you again to Dr. Vanderkolk for joining us on the inaugural Return to Base podcast. And by the way, if you want to learn more, you can go out and get his book, The Body Keeps the Score. It's available pretty much everywhere. Amazon. I heard it on uh, on Audible, so I, I listened to the tape while working out. Also read it, got off of Amazon. So if you're really interested in learning more and hearing more, go get the book. Also, if you're interested in learning more and hearing more from the doctor himself, he's hosting an interactive four-week program that's it's meeting four times over a four-week period from October 20th uh, and October 27th, November 3rd, and November 10th. That is, it's meeting those days, October 20th, 27th, November 3rd, and 10th from 12 to 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time. There's going to be a link in the show notes that will take you to the registration and if you use coupon code VETLIFECOMMUNITY with no spaces, that's V-E-T-L-I-F-C-O-M-M-U-N-I-T-Y, 
no spaces, you'll get $100, excuse me, you'll get $150 off of registration. So you'll get that program for grand total of $100, which is amazing. It's going to be great. It's an hour and a half of a uh, combination of lecture and discussion with the doctor. You, you all heard how easy it is to talk to. He's full of information and just a really great person. So go do that. Uh, so again, that's the first podcast in the books. We're happy to get that over with and very excited because we have some amazing guests coming up. We have people lined up in from the business community, from the um, veteran service organization community, folks who are helping veterans every day. If you would please, it'd be great if you could follow us on Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn and all the other socials. Our handle for Instagram is this is veteran life. That's T H I S I S V E T E R A N L I F E. Hope I got that right. If not, we'll edit it out. So go to Instagram, follow us, go to veteranlife.com. That's www.veteranlife.com. You'll be able to see all the other socials and you'll also be able to see. A ton of information that we're bringing for you in the form of blogs. We'll have some tools on there. We're going to have some videos. It's going to be a a great place to to come if you're a veteran or the spouse of a veteran or just interested in reading some informative, sometimes funny, sometimes maybe a little bit offensive. I don't know. If you're offended by it, we're sorry. We didn't mean to, but just good information. So thanks for joining us and... See you next time.